Hello and welcome to the F1 Strategy Report for 2018. My name's Michael Laminato and this is Round 6, the Monaco Grand Prix. Daniel Ricciardo put in one of his career-best drives with a broken power unit to keep Sebastian Vettel at bay and win what Lewis Hamilton described as one of the most boring Grand Prix he's ever participated in. But in reality, just ahead of and behind Hamilton, the race had plenty of tension just bubbling under the surface. To analyse the decisions that made the Monaco Grand Prix, I'm joined by Lawrence Edmondson, F1 editor at ESPN. Lawrence, how are you doing? Not too bad, how are you? Yeah, very well. It's, uh, it is an exciting race in the sense that it is that big hype round, isn't it? Like it's the, I mean, they call it the jewel in the crown, the blue ribboned event. And uh, everyone's very much worked up about it right up until Sunday, really. Then we remember that it's a, a street circuit. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's a shame, really, because if you're going to go and do Monaco properly, basically you go there and you stand trackside for qualifying because... That is unlike anything else in the world. That is one of the most special things, and it's it's the closest you'll get to a Formula One car. It's the closest you'll get to seeing a Formula One car right on the edge, and um, it's just remarkable to watch. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of gets forgotten by Sunday evening because you know if the race is bad, if there's no overtaking, we have the same conversation every year. I mean, it's a bit like okay. Albert Park when we've had bad races there, and people are surprised. And it's like, well, you know, look at the track layout, look at the history of the you know of, of the race, and, and see what's happened. I think unusual one about this one was how slow the race was, but I'm sure we'll get onto that and the reasons for that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was a bit of a shame because you get to the end of uh, the weekend, it feels like an anticlimax because everyone's complaining <laughs> about another dull Monaco Grand Prix. It's uh, I think it feels like Formula one's run out of crisis cards at this point i mean we had so many early on that we played that there's not really anything they can grab for after this surely it's just a matter of surely people have to accept by this point that some races are just not going to be um spectacles like the way perhaps some people want them to be i mean that's absolutely right i mean if you look at um i mean i actually thought the australian grand prix was quite good i was really surprised i flew back from australia and then I saw this bad press about, you know, no overtaking and all this kind of stuff. And one, like I said, I thought, well, you know, why is everyone surprised about this? And secondly, I thought, well, the fastest car didn't win. There were reasons for that. You know, there was a little kind of uh, uh, kind of strategy at play and Ferrari played their cars right for the situation that unfolded. And I thought, well, that was quite interesting. And then we had three brilliant races and, mm. oh, you know, crisis over. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we've got these new regulations next year uh, coming in. So... I would really reserve judgment on some of the races at the moment until we see how they unfold there. I don't think it's going to make a difference in Monaco, although the DRS will be more powerful, so maybe that will present a few more opportunities. But, um, yeah, realistically, I think we've got to accept it. And we've got to accept that if you go to a race like Monaco with a track that was originally laid out in 1929, OK, I know it's changed a lot, but then you know that's why we go there. We go there for the history. We go there for um, the shock and awe of seeing Ocar go around there and qualifying. This year, in a record time by quite some way and look, if the race doesn't work out it doesn't work out but um, I, you know, I can assure you the, the people there the spectacle there the kind of party that goes around it is uh, it's still quite something to behold so if you ever get a chance to go <laughs> by any chance you know um, anybody listening definitely take it up because it's unlike anything else uh, you're experiencing motorsport. Now part of the reason the, the cars were setting such quick times this year and if we talk about tweaks to races to try and improve the overall spectacle was the Hypersoft tyre, the new tyre from Pirelli made its debut uh, for this season here at this race, it was coloured pink, it's a shame if you were colourblind it probably looked quite similar to the other two tyres uh, and it did its job in qualifying didn't it, I mean it dropped the times it was 
perhaps a little bit better suited to Monaco, which is a low energy circuit. So traditionally, there's not a lot of wear and that kind of stuff going on. But I thought it was interesting that it was actually criticized by the end of the weekend on a number of fronts. Um, We'll talk a little bit about the naming of the tyres a little bit later on. But considering that we went into the weekend and Pirelli was always already promising that it was probably going to last a lot longer than people were expecting, should it have been softer or is it simply a matter of there's not going to ever really be a tyre that is going to be the, the way people expect it to be on a circuit like this. Yeah, I, I think that is that is the issue. I mean, Monaco is so unusual because, like I said, it's so low energy. There's no high-speed corners. And what we're talking about here, and it, it's not just the temperature of the tyre. Surface temperature is very different to bulk temperature. And you build up that bulk temperature by um, going through corners at high speed. So actually they were testing it in Spain and okay the tyre was running out uh, it was degrading even by the final sector but they were saying it's a very stable tyre you know this is a great tyre we're all looking forward to Monaco qualifying they got to Monaco qualifying and they did get that stable tyre um, but the issue in the race was that because you have this very smooth surface with no high energy um, uh, corners you have the situation where the tyre kind of drags along the surface of this smooth track and it kind of overheats very very much on the uh, on the outside of the tyre and that creates this phenomenon called graining, which you can see visibly on the TV and uh, you can see on the tyres when they come off. And that creates all these ripples of rubber and kind of little bits of rubber on top of, on top of the surface of the tyre, which means it loses all this grip, which means it degrades, which means it's very tempting to whip it off the tyre, uh, sorry, off the car, put on a new set of tyres and see how those go. And that's what happens. So you could see that some teams were able to cope with that graining a lot better. And I think that came down to setup. I think to some extent it comes down to driving style but mainly down to setup and uh, you saw teams maybe go for more of a qualifying setup where um, they're looking after the rear so they don't overheat so that you have a consistent tyre throughout a single lap then you saw some teams kind of a little bit more careful about the front tyres which meant they could go longer into the race so I think actually the Hypersoft did deliver what it was expected to deliver it's just that at Monaco you're always going to have this graining issue and I think the track didn't quite rubber in as, as people expected. Pirelli were hoping that that would uh, counter the graining. And then also, um, it was actually, there was cloud cover on Sunday, which means that the track temperature goes down, which also kind of encourages graining as well. So all these things put together, and you ended up with, yeah, as you say, you know, some drivers complaining after the race. But hey, look, you know, if a driver doesn't finish in the top 10 at mm-hmm. Monaco, they've got to have a reason for it, right? So the easiest one in this situation was the blend size as a final sort of note on the tyres and we'll we'll see how this sort of played out over the race as we go through this analysis but I guess some people when we're talking about having the softest tyres tyres at Monaco are always hoping that we have more than one stop and indeed that's what Pirelli wants and the sport wants is races with more than one stop but at a track like Monaco where overtaking is statistically the most difficult because it's so narrow especially at these cars we've run through all the reasons now and over the course of the season can we really ever expect Monaco to be anything more than a, a quite a conservative one stop when you consider the advantages of taking it slow and making sure the tyres last are far greater than going faster but stopping more than once? Yeah, th- I mean, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And it's all about track positions. So the only way, and I'm surprised to some extent that Mercedes didn't do a, uh, a two stop with, say, someone like Bottas, is that when you get that gap behind you, then there's some advantage to put on a new set of tyres. And it's not really for normal strategy purposes, it's just if there's a safety car you then have fresher tyres if no one else decides to pit or you know and you kind of just put yourself off everyone else's strategy and and, and that's the kind of thing that sometimes happens at Monaco but 
I think the reason Mercedes didn't do that here was actually because they didn't have another set of usable tyres. Uh, they didn't want to put the hypersoft back on because they saw how much they were graining, especially on the Mercedes, probably more so on the Mercedes than any other car on the grid. Uh, they didn't want to do the ultrasoft for similar reasons because Lewis was struggling, and they only had one set of supersofts for Valtteri anyway in the race. So you, you have this situation where these rules and kind of regulations around uh, around tyres, which basically means you have to use two compounds in the race, and uh, you're going to take six, seven sets of tyres into the race, and you have the situation uh, where those kind of rules actually work really well at other tracks, but Monaco is so different, that forget it. I mean, I think the only way you could have created multiple stops were if you say, okay, you only have to use hypersoft, for example, <laughs> during the race. You know, you, you've got four sets of hypersofts. That's it. You can't use. You can't go onto another compound. But of course, you know that's against the regulations they are at the moment. And also, it, I'm not sure it would have made a better spectacle. You would have just had a lot more pit stops, a lot more chances for mistakes. But I'm not sure it would have actually uh, made the racing that much more exciting. Now, before we get into the race, I suppose this acts as a kind of a disclaimer. It's the first time we've had to do it this season because we have debuted the hypersoft, and it's been a topic of conversation the lead up to this race because Pirelli's been asked to consider Nick next year not identifying the tyres by their compounds but identifying them only per race for the three compounds as hard medium and soft and I suppose there's a particularly poignant race in which this comes up because we have the ultra soft super soft and hyper soft not in that order because already I've confused myself as to which is the hardest tyre it's the super soft why is that harder than a hyper soft or an ultra soft it's it's difficult to say what is the reception to this kind of um, proposal I suppose Pirelli didn't seem keen on the idea when it was raised with them uh, in the lead up to this season is this something where perhaps Formula 1's going to force the issue and and make things I suppose uh, clearer if not simpler for next season yeah um, I certainly hope so I I mean I don't know how you (laughs) about it I, I, I mean this is something which I mean I'm sure it's been discussed by many people you know uh, throughout Formula 1 but it came up in a number of media sessions last year when we were talking about bringing in or probably were talking about bringing in the Hypersoft and how important that was um, so yeah it, it came up then and probably were like oh no you know we, we like the identity of these tyres you know they all have a character because they all have a colour and all this kind of stuff and a few people looking around thinking well you know this is, this is nonsense you know, what we need is something clear so that when somebody comes to a race and let's say they turn on the Monaco Grand Prix because it's the only race they watch all year because it's exciting it's around the streets and it's different you need to be able to understand what's going on and that means you need to be able to know just by the names of the tyres at least um, ideally by the colours as well but just by the names which is hardest which is softest which is in the middle Um, and uh, yeah so the FIA and Formula 1 have presented this idea to Pirelli uh, you know for kind of consideration yeah you're right Pirelli don't seem like that enthusiastic about it but they're also happy to go with it I mean to be fair it's pretty you know they, they, they do tend to do what the FIA thinks best what, what the teams think best and what Formula 1 thinks best and they do their best job so I mean this isn't like developing new compounds it's not like they've been asked to completely change their philosophy entire they've basically been asked to change names and the colours on the sidewalk so I think it will go ahead and I think personally I mean um, yeah you know feel free to give your opinion but I think it's it will make it so much easier to understand and if you're worried about not knowing exactly which compound it is they'll make that information available. So you have like A, B, C, D, E, F, G or whatever. And then uh, that will be kind of a secondary set of information that if you are keen enough to know, is it actually the very softest tire in Freddy's range or the second softest or whatever, mm. then you can still find that information out and the teams obviously will know it. So um, so it'll basically be the same as it is now, but for the kind of 
guy coming in and just watching on his TV for the first time in five years, he'll understand more or less what's going on with the tyres. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I think as long as that information's available, that's important because I think it plays a bit of a narrative role in the sport. Like we know that certain cars prefer certain tyres, but uh, it certainly got me on board this race where realistically there isn't any difference in the names in the sense of which should be the softer tyre, like what makes a hypersoft more or less soft than anything else and it is it's confusing in that sense isn't it so and who knows then Pirelli can bring in three or four more tyres if they really wanted to since they seem so keen on expanding the range uh, looking to the race itself though uh, the winner of course was Daniel Ricciardo probably you've seen it by now uh, and it wasn't the race probably he expected because we saw Red Bull Racing had a significant pace advantage throughout the weekend but you'd look at the times and see that Ricciardo only won by seven seconds probably not the result he would have expected going into this round because he had a power unit problem he lost a whole lot of horsepower and this really was the the tension of the race wasn't it the idea that maybe he could lose it because he had such a lack of power but for a combination of reasons Sebastian Vettel and then Lewis Hamilton couldn't catch him yeah I mean I when I heard that radio message and um even when Red Bull heard that radio message losing power you know mm-hmm. we, we know what this Renault power unit is <laughs> like we know that it's it's fragile. We know that that that's for the end of the race. And um, the performance engineers, are, sorry, the uh, reliability engineers at Red Bull, were actually saying, you know, guys, let's let, let's stop this. There's a real danger that um, it could have a problem with the with the engine as well. That means we're looking at even more penalties by the end of the year. Uh, so from a purely engineering reliability point of view, uh, the view was that look, chances are we're going to lose the engine as well. Now. Christian Horner had a chat with Adrian Newey on the pit wall and they were both 100% convinced that the best way to go about this race, you leave the Monaco Grand Prix, is to see it to the end. And that's what they did. Um, but yeah, so in terms of uh, in terms of stats, losing the uh, MG UK by itself is 160 brake horsepower gone. Red Bull reckon he lost overall about a quarter of the performance of, of from the engine uh, and they reckoned that that was costing him alone about two seconds per lap but then you've got to factor in that he had to look after the rear brakes because the way the engine UK works is that it offers a huge amount of resistance on the rear axle and works in tandem with the rear brakes so if you remove the engine UK the rear brakes overheat so he had to look after those he had to shift the brake bias forwards which meant that there was a real chance of locking up into uh, any of the heavy braking zones at Monaco and uh, it meant that he also had to carry extra speed onto the straight so really exercise uh, that RB14 chassis probably the only person who really was exercising their chassis the whole weekend in certain corners around the track so that he could defend into the braking zones and actually I mean the sad thing about Formula 1 sometimes is that that isn't immediately obvious to the fan watching but once you kind of understood all that and once uh, we kind of got a little inklings of what's going on from the team radio wow you know this mm-hmm. this was actually really tense okay it wasn't thrilling Seb, Seb didn't actually have a go at him didn't have a go on the inside of the Nouveau Chicane which I think was a bit of a shame but that underlined what a brilliant job uh, Daniel Ricciardo was doing in that Red Bull and I think this really does go down as one of the brilliant drives um, at Monaco really one of the brilliant drives of the last you know 10-20 years it, it really was that special um, and uh, and to cap it off with the first win and the win that you didn't get in 2016 I thought it was fantastic yeah and Christian Horner made the comparison to uh, Michael Schumacher's 1994 Spanish Grand Prix drive where he was stuck in fifth gear and I suppose you can see where that parallel is coming from even if they're not exactly the same problem but I also mentioned which I thought was particularly worth noting that he was impressed by the way that Ricardo was thinking about other parts of the race like 
he was asking about other drivers and how they were traveling and he was thinking about what would happen if there were a safety car if another pit stop were required it shows how much there is going on at the monaco grand prix i suppose below the surface because while it all comes off as a a straightforward one stop it's pretty much a race that's all about calculating what might happen even if it never ends up happening yeah that's right and the, the really tricky thing here is that they do the practice on thursday and uh, now on a usual Grand Prix weekend you use a second practice session to figure out how long your tyres are going to go you do a long stint, you try and get no traffic during that long stint so you know if you're pushing at this level this is roughly how long the tyres are going to go then you extrapolate that to a race distance and you get, with the extra knowledge you have about the tyres from previous races uh, you get a fairly good idea of, um, of how long you can go into the race in Monaco, forget it, because on Thursday the track is what we call green in Formula 1, you know, there's no rubber down, it's it's a public road for the rest of the year, um, there's no other track like it, so you can't really use it to uh, cross-compare, and then on Friday uh, there's a huge party in Raskas in the final <laughs> sector, and beer gets spilled all over it, and cigarette butts go all over it, and all the rest of it, and then you end up uh, coming back on Saturday, and you've got a very different track, but you know, you've got to get the car ready for qualifying in final practice, then you've got to qualify. Then you go into the race, and actually, yeah, you know, this is one of the issues. You don't really know how the tyres are going to perform, and um, this is a problem a lot of the teams face. So while it looks boring from the outside a lot of the time, actually they're getting into the unknown, and uh, and that's why Ricardo was like, well, you know, I, I took on, I think he, what did he pit around? Lap 17, yeah. So, you know, that was then a 61-lap stint on the Ultrasofts which was unknown territory so um, he was then asking well how was Verstappen getting on in the first stint on the Ultrasofts not a perfect comparison mm-hmm. because uh, Verstappen was on heavy fuel at the time but still you know he can start to work out and the fact that that was going on inside the cockpit while he was doing all those things I was talking about earlier you know not locking up not setting the rear brakes on fire I mean that's yeah it, it, it is remarkable what these guys do and okay it they were slow relatively to what they were doing on Saturday uh, they were slow relatively to how fast they go around Monaco but these cars are still moving incredibly quickly between two armco barriers uh, you know with potential for debris to be on the track with you know potential for uh, a lapsed car to uh, lose it on the marbles or this kind of stuff it is it, it is kind of far more exciting it's just that you've got to convey that excitement to, to fans and that can be quite difficult when you've got drivers on the radio moaning about graining and, <laughs> and how slow their car is so it's a tricky one isn't it yeah or drivers saying that fans should get refunds for the <laughs> tickets that they bought very strong language yeah yeah um, I mean yeah if, if, the thing is if you buy a ticket going to Monaco expecting yeah. overtaking then you somebody sold it to you under false pretenses because uh, some fake advertising going on there because that's that's never going to happen <laughs> and we look at those pit stops in particular uh, they took place between laps 12 and 17 Lewis Hamilton was the first to pit no positions changed though in that process uh, there was no significant undercut or overcut for any of the top six uh, what i thought was interesting though was that mercedes put valtteri bottas on the super soft tire which was the hardest compound just to re- reiterate whereas everyone else was on the ultra softs including one of the ferrari drivers let's say Kimi Räikkönen in this situation were you surprised that considering that there's not that much to lose. Obviously, there's nothing to lose from choosing a different tyre at the pit stop in the time. And But even then, in terms of pace differentiation, the, the top uh, three teams are so far away that the idea of losing a position is pretty remote. The Ferrari didn't choose to split its strategies just to see if anything would be able to come of it? Yeah, maybe. I, 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 can, I can see the point there. And you can see mm-hmm. why Mercedes did what they did. Um, it's also true that Valtteri was really struggling in that first stint, like really, really struggling. So I think Mercedes felt that you know they needed needed to make a real change going into the race. And this is always the important thing to remember when you're looking at strategies after the race: is that 
everyone thought the ultra soft would actually be the better race tire you know once you're on that you're sorted through to the end of the race you won't struggle much with degradation they weren't expecting the levels of graining they got on the front tires and um it was a it was kind of down as uh, i think 0.2 seconds per lap quicker um over over a race sim uh so you know th- there's a small advantage there so I think the thinking was, look, you know, if if, if you put Raikkonen on uh, on the super softs and then Valtteri goes on to the ultra softs, and then Valtteri gets past him, then you know Ferrari or you know has a big pace advantage. Then Ferrari looked pretty stupid because everyone says, well, why did you put him on the the hardest tire there? You know, when you had the option of the other one. So, I think you know you have to kind of take these things into consideration. I I also think realistically, unless you had a safety car towards the end of the race or something else to mix it up, the teams could see that. They weren't going to gain or lose positions, and um, and and also when Ferrari pitted Raikkonen, they would have known roughly uh, where Lewis was on 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 the uh, on the track, and then whether he would have been able to get any advantage, and he wasn't able to. So why not just go with the most conservative, straight strategy, settle for fourth, and uh, run it to the end of the race in the belief that it would run very well to the end of the race as well. So I think that's why they do. It. I, I can completely understand your point. Um, why not try something different? And that's exactly what Bottas did few guys further down the grid and I think more so when it became clear that the Ultrasoft wasn't the tyre that everyone thought it was so um, yeah I, I, I guess that's why they did it and that was the way the top five was sorted out it was in of course in qualifying order and you know we had one driver who was happy and the other four who were sort of happy that it was over in fact explicitly if you're Lewis Hamilton but looking behind those drivers to the midfield where most of the action seems to take place these days in Formula 1 and Esteban Ocon very impressively finished in sixth place and I suppose if anyone's to remember Esteban Ocon's race other than for that finishing position uh, I think the time when he got the most television exposure was when he essentially waved past Lewis Hamilton uh, during that first pit stop window. Hamilton had stopped earlier than he had on lap 12 as we said and Ocon had waited till lap 23 to stop so Hamilton had emerged behind him and Ocon let him pass. It sort of shows A, the two halves of the grid here where we've got two cars that aren't really racing each other but it shows this idea that performing to a certain race time is also important. It's not so much battling the cars on track as it is doing your optimum race time and that kind of paid off because Ocon emerged from his pit stop pretty close but ahead of Fernando Alonso who was racing at the time yeah I think what Ocon did was right and certainly for his career it's what's is what's right as well because um he's a Mercedes junior driver and genuinely I I think that 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 was part of it you know he um he saw Mercedes come up behind him as you say I'm only going to lose time if it it becomes a real tight battle he was on uh hypersoft's I, don't, I didn't actually talk to him afterwards. I don't know how much he was struggling with the graining issues that maybe some of the front cars were struggling with. But um, either way, like you know, he he was racing his own race by keeping Lewis behind. He was never going to gain a position. You know, he was he was always going to be off those top five. So sick was the position he was aiming for, and what a result that is in a Force India around Monaco, by the way. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it makes absolute sense. Like you say, keep the times consistent. Let the Mercedes disappear into distance. And uh, and then yeah, and then keep your eye behind you on what's going on. So again, not not a real surprise surprise in what he did. Uh, and I think there were kind of you know a number of reasons for it. But um, yeah, in the end, absolutely the right decision as far as I'm concerned to wave another car through. If you're not on the same strategy, mm-hmm. why battle? The second half of that equation was of course the Alonso half, and he retired in the end, so it didn't actually matter uh, that his attempted undercut didn't work. But what I thought was interesting was the way that that was set up with Stoffel Van Dorn, who was kind of unhappy after the race because he felt like he'd been used by the team a little bit just to benefit his teammate in the sense that he stopped later than uh, his immediate rivals who he was racing at the time. Yeah, so he basically acted as a blocker for Verstappen, didn't he? Verstappen was coming through 
and uh, because Verstappen was on that alternative strategy of starting on the ultra softs, going on to the hyper softs, uh, compared to wh- where Alonso was, uh, he was coming a real threat. So, um, and if you actually look at, uh, yeah, as you say, there was that shuffle, wasn't there? So, um, so when uh, Alonso returned to the track and uh, Van Dorn was behind him and Verstappen was behind him, there were the gaps were pretty small. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have them exactly at hand now, but I, I did look at, look at them ahead of coming on here, and and they were pretty small. So, had Van Dorn not done that job. Uh, Verstappen may have found that clear air to leapfrog uh, Alonso before he made his uh, pit stop. So that would have lost McLaren uh, those positions. And realistically, Van Dorn probably was, unless something big kicks off at the front, he probably wasn't going to make the top 10 from where he was. So this is one of those situations where, you know, it's it, it, it comes back to qualifying. Uh, we talk about how qualifying Monaco, uh, sorry, how important qualifying is at Monaco. And it's not just for the guys at the front, it's all down the grid. If you qualify um, outside the top 10, and your strategy isn't working to get you into the top 10 and you have a teammate who is in the top 10 and is under threat from you know faster car coming through of course the team's going to use you and so I think you know, he, he said after the race that uh, you know that he felt like he was used a bit uh, but I don't you know he can only be disappointed with himself and, and, and what happened on Saturday so you know th- these things come around and uh, and the team especially that team especially with Alonso they're always going to do what's best for Alonso and uh, and Van Dorn actually played a pretty important role, I, I felt. Well, I'm sure, yeah, he can take some solace in the fact that he could have possibly helped the team <laughs> score some points. Uh, I'm sure he's thinking about that right now. Uh, behind Ocon finished Pierre Gasly, uh, notable because his strategy was pretty much not like anyone else's. He almost split the race right down the middle, despite starting on, because he qualified in the top 10, uh, used hypersoft tyres. Took them way past where anyone else, including he thought they could go and that was the making of a terrific seventh place for Toro Rosso yeah I mean for, for all the stuff we said about the hypersoft tyres earlier and kind of ditching them as early as you can here was proof that actually maybe these tyres weren't so bad and I think a lot of this comes down to the individual traits of each car and the setup of each car and uh, he just didn't really seem to struggle with, uh, with, with graining as much or if he did it didn't matter because he was in traffic early on and then he got through that graining phase and, uh, and was able to kind of put in competitive lap times I thought that was massively impressive. Mm. I mean, for a guy who's you know s- s- still fairly low on experience and uh, yeah, kind of comes to the Monaco Grand Prix on these tyres that no one knows about, um, it was almost like a little bit, um, a little bit like Sergio Perez earlier in his career when he used to run tyres way longer than anyone thought was possible, uh, or kind of you know, just find ways of managing them in a different way. Um, so yeah, I think there's probably a fascinating story to be told there about exactly how he managed that. Um, I think you'd have to get in touch with some of the Toro Rosso engineers, but. Yeah, I mean, for, for, for me, that was, um, along with Ocon, that was one of uh, the really good drives of the day. I, I, I don't know what you felt about that. Yeah, I mean, as you say, to be in this, what, what would this be, ninth, ninth or tenth Grand Prix and at one of the most precarious racetracks on tyres that no one's experienced before? To a, And of course, through, naturally, the traffic, even if you don't have to overtake anyone, you're still racing around other people while trying to do your optimum. That was impressive. And of course, at the end of the day, he ended up with Hulkenberg and Verstappen behind him, uh, defending them, even if it was only for a short amount of time, I think, towards the end of the race. I mean, that sort of caps it off for him. And for that team, I think it was also important because it showed that even though, okay, the Honda engine's been performing relatively well this year, certainly compared to the last three years, but it shows that that car is still really good, if not just at using the tyres, but uh, aerodynamically and in general. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I mean, I I think the Canadian Grand Prix, the next next Grand Prix could be <laughs> could be a trickier situation but um, but you're right yeah I mean we, we, see, we saw in Bahrain as well didn't we which is surprising because that's a power circuit mm. 
but um, we, we see that this car actually underneath is it, it is pretty special. Nico Hulkenberg and uh, Max Verstappen, uh, two drivers, actually only the two drivers who really tried what was considered, of course, the contra strategy beforehand, which was running a long first stint on one of the harder tyres. Uh, despite this being considered after qualifying, perhaps one of the the vulnerabilities the top 10 would have because uh, going long on a harder tyre is usually advantageous in Monaco because you can just kind of avoid all the mess of the regular pit stop window. And they showed that it did work really well. Nico Hulkenberg stopped on lap 50 and he got um, three places up from his grid spot. And of course, Verstappen did some overtaking early on, but his long pit stop on, on lap 47 got him 11 places by the end of the Grand Prix. You surprised considering how many drivers outside the top 10 did start on the Ultrasoft, um, didn't end up going for that strategy and, and did a pretty much the same strategy that top 10 did, just with different tyres. It's a fair point, actually. Yeah, yeah, it is a really good point. Um, I suppose if you look at some of those cars outside the top 10, uh, maybe they wouldn't have uh, been that competitive anyway. But um, yeah, it's, it, it's a very good point. And if you look at, if you want the comparison, if you want you know, the straight comparison, for the Renault, you've got Hulkenberg, um, uh, okay, he's let past mm. Science in the end, but Science was nowhere, you know, and I, I guess, again, this tells us a little bit about the Hypersoft tyre, but maybe with the heavy fuel loads, um, it was really struggling, and maybe that was adding to the, uh, the front graining issues they were suffering, and then by the end of the race, if you're on a, on a relatively light car, then uh, then it kind of wasn't wasn't quite so bad. Um, but no, I, I think both of those um, did a great job. Of course, Verstappen, we know that he was in by far the best car um, out there and so it was really just a way of always trying to find the space to exercise that car to get the best possible lap times as consistently as possible uh, that you could so um, Red Bull would have been working really hard there uh, to figure out which strategy would put him with the most kind of free air in front of him to make the most of that car and whatever tyres were on it and I think to be honest that car would have been quick you know no matter what time was on it uh, anyway so um yeah so he, uh, th- before the race i think red bull felt that um points would be a would, would be a big success and ultimately that's what they got i don't know i mean really could he have gone any higher <laughs> i don't know it's a tricky one he, he got blocked a bit by van dorn as we talked about earlier but yeah um by the end of the race he was right on the back of gasly hulkenberg uh wasn't he so um yeah it's uh it it, it was no surprise to even go for that strategy but I, I think it was the right strategy as well and um and uh, yeah, and I think the reason those two guys um, were able to make it work better than the others was because they had the race car underneath them to do it. Yeah, and this seems like a, a fair enough way to, to bookmark the end of this show. We started, well, we started more or less in terms of the order with Daniel Ricciardo, but to, to wrap up with Max Verstappen, it's been a high-profile weekend for him, but probably for the wrong reasons. We've seen the statistics. It was the sixth race in a row. He's had some kind of incident. We know he had that crash in free practice three, which is a... A fairly significant mistake in Monaco uh, because obviously he's taking so much risk on the circuit. The rebuild time ended up being too long for him to get out in qualifying. Started from the back. Uh, ended up scoring some points, but certainly nothing close to what the car was capable of. What's your sense on the Max Verstappen situation at this point? Because we've had a whole bunch of milestones at the start of the year where people have thought, well, that would be when he sort of started to turn it around and learn from these mistakes. And it doesn't seem to have been the case. And we've seen a strengthening of the language from the team ahead and after this race. Yeah. I, I think Red Bull are, are pretty furious about the way things have gone uh, in recent races and um, and how he's performing and rightly so I mean they, they put him on what I understand to be an incredibly lucrative contract uh, for a Red Bull driver um, last year to take him through 2020 at the team and since he's had that <laughs> he hasn't really performed and then meanwhile you've got Ricardo in the other car 
uh, putting in great performance after great performance, really measured drives, you know, really kind of making the most of it. And then if Ricardo had had, okay, reliability issues in Bahrain, but if he hadn't been, what in my opinion, was, you know, kind of in an accident caused by Verstappen, Mm -hmm. um, then uh, then he'd be even higher up the, the championship. And I think it's got to the point where if I was running Red Bull, the punishment for Verstappen would be say, okay, Ricardo's de facto number one for the upcoming races until you can turn this around on performance alone. Um, that's the situation we run with in the team because if Red Bull are going to challenge Mercedes and Ferrari, they're going to need every bit of help they can get. Okay, if the Renault upgrade in Canada works, then perhaps that's going to be the step they want. But if they're going to do it, you know, they, they need to kind of look after one driver and. Um, and Ricardo is already, I think, 37 points clear of, uh, of Verstappen. Uh, he's basically got double the points Verstappen has. So, I, I mean, I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, look, put all your eggs in the uh, Ricardo basket, go for it. Um, and, uh, okay, if Verstappen can get himself back into the frame, uh, then so be it. But, you know, that's a pretty big punishment in my eyes. So uh, that's where I would go if I was Red Bull. And uh, also might convince Verstappen to calm down a bit in the knowledge that, well, you know, uh, in, in, until I actually start getting the solid results I'm not going to be given uh, the, the you know the best parts on the car the lightest parts on the car uh, the best strategies uh, I'm going to be told you know to not race my teammate and stuff like that so in, in, until he kind of comes himself down gets the results and, and that's why I go with it I don't think Red Bull will do that mm. just because of the situation in the team and, and, and I know they do like to uh, at least give the impression of, of having uh, e- equal drivers at the front and um, and they're also they've invested a lot of money in Verstappen so I can't see them making that decision but Personally, I, I think that's the stage it's got to because uh, crashing in final practice at Monaco is one of the big taboos in Formula 1. You just don't do it. You don't need mm-hmm. to. Basically, all you're doing in that session is setting up the car so that when you hit qualifying, you know you've got a good car underneath you. Um, you don't win any prizes. You don't win anything by beating your teammate. And and I think that's exactly what Verstappen was trying to do. He was trying to get the psychological edge going into um, into qualifying by having a quicker lap time than, than, than Ricardo, who had been... Uh, quicker up to that point and, um, and and he messed up and he partly messed up in fairness to him because he came across a slow car in the swimming pool I was actually stood at the first part of the swimming pool as he came through Carlos Sainz came through on a slow lap as he's entirely entitled to do then Verstappen came through on this monster lap fast as I've ever seen a car go through mm. that part of the swimming pool chicane and I thought there was going to be a huge accident on the following little straight in the end Sainz got out of the way but that's I think what put Verstappen off his stride going into the second part and he turned in too early uh, probably hit the brakes maybe a bit too early as well uh, because he was you know still negotiating uh, science or had been just fractions of a second beforehand uh, and then he uh, clobbered the wall but you know you just if you come up behind a car like that in the swimming pool chicane back off you know you haven't lost anything you know from the first two sectors where the car was bring that into qualifying don't try and be the hero and that's exactly what he did and that's I, as far as I can tell, why Red Bull was so angry with them. Well, it'll be interesting to see how the next race is. Certainly the next race in Canada will unfold. Monaco Grand Prix! It was a Monaco Grand Prix, that's what we can say about it, but there was some tension in it, at very least. It was a pleasure to look back on it with you, Lawrence. Yeah, thank you very much. That was Lawrence Edmondson, F1 editor at ESPN. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. You can get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you normally get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review to help other F1 fans find the show. You can also read the written report at f1strategyreport.com and stay up to date by finding us on Facebook and Twitter. My name's Michael Laminato. You can find me at Michael Laminato on Twitter. And I'll catch you in two weeks' time for a wrap-up of the Canadian Grand Prix.